0: Right, welcome everybody to the fourth episode of the Sweet Spot Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Lebovich. I'm here with my boy and my co-host, Mark Abramovitz. We got a good episode for you guys on tap today. For everyone who's been with us along the way, welcome back. For any new listeners, welcome. What we do here on the Sweet Spot Podcast is we discuss the intersection between the utilization of data and human decision-making in baseball development and gameplay. So in our past couple episodes, we had some great interviews. We had Nick Kuzia and Matt Ribas on the show. We hashed out pitch design. We hashed out data at the NCAA level. And now what Mark and I are going to do is we're going to take a little bit of a rewind and go into how data and analytics kind of started within baseball and how they've developed. Mark, why don't you tell everyone what we got on tap for today?
1: What's up, Jake? I'm super excited for this episode. This is our Moneyball past, present, and future episode. We're going to talk, like you said, about how this stuff really got started and how it picked up in the early 2000s. We're going to focus on some teams that really excelled and ran with this in the mid-2000s, the 2010s. Then we're going to talk about what teams are doing today. And at the end, we're going to take a look at where we think this is going to go in the future and how teams are going to continue to get an edge over the other 29 teams in the league going forward. All right, let's get it.
0: So I feel like when you start talking about data and analytics, you kind of have to go backwards and talk about how these analytics came to be. And a big word used nowadays is sabermetrics, right? So what are sabermetrics? They are the statistical analysis of baseball, and they look beyond traditional stats that were commonly used all the time, such as batting average and home runs. And they dive into some more intricate things within the game of baseball. And now teams are using these stats to evaluate player performance and making personnel decisions within the front office. So Sabermetrics was developed by Bill James, who was a baseball fan who wanted to understand player performance better, which personally I think is a little ironic because for me, advanced data and complex analytics, those are usually things that confuse me. So the fact that someone created these things to make that person understand the game of baseball is a little weird to me. But uh, Mark, why don't you kind of dive in to Sabermetrics a little bit more and tell everyone about
1: that? Sure. So like you said, this term was coined by Bill James, who is one of the pioneers in the field. Interesting tidbit about where the name comes from. It's from the Society of American Baseball Research. So S-A-B-R. And then that S-A-B-R metrics kind of got turned into That word, sabermetrics, that's where this stuff comes from. But as you alluded to, Bill James was trying to better understand players' impact on the game of baseball. And this could be for several reasons. It could be to better understand which players had an impact on their team in a particular year, which players had the best careers, or as we're typically interested in on this podcast is how to predict future performance for players, how to make players better, et cetera. And so what Bill James was interested in is he was saying, we have these stats, like you mentioned, batting average, RBIs, where this is predominantly what's used to assess which players are good, which players are going to continue to be good, who had great years. And he took a look at this and said, which of these things are actually indicative of how good a player was or will be. So for example, something like batting average has two flaws. Number one, Or maybe it has more than two flaws, but we'll go into a couple here. Number one, you get credit for hits that maybe shouldn't be hits most of the time. And you also don't get credit for really hard hit balls that may have been caught. That's one flaw with it. And the other flaw, just on a very simple level, is that batting average doesn't take into account any way that you could get on base. So a guy who has a really good eye and walks a lot does not get rewarded in his batting average and this is a huge motivation both in the book and the movie Moneyball and not just the book and the movie but in real life what the Oakland Athletics did in the early 2000s was they were able to find inefficiencies in the way that the market for baseball players was evaluating talent because the market was vastly underpricing guys who just get on base that was a huge sabermetric revolution was looking at guys who just get on base another thing was looking at earned run average for pitchers is something that was looked at as a good indicator of how good a pitcher was. But similar to its flaws with batting average, it may reward or not reward pitchers accordingly for things that may or may not be in their own control.
0: What's super interesting is, you know, hitters who walk all the time or who hit balls really hard, move guys over. Those guys are super valuable to a team. So even though those guys might not have a high batting average for a guy that walks or gets on base a ton, steals a ton of bases, that is just as valuable to a ball club as a guy who's hitting a single and getting on base that way. So you mentioned stats like batting average, ERA. I'm going to, do a little segment here. We'll call it the gold, silver, and bronze. I'm going to give you three of my favorite advanced metrics, and I want you to tell me what you think about them. So we'll go bottom up. The first one I want to talk about is FIP. FIP, Fielding Independent Pitching, is a metric that measures what a pitcher's ERA would look like if the defense behind them was league average. And why this is one of my favorite ones and one that's talked about a lot today in the MLB, like you were saying, earned run average has its shortcomings, right? You might have a pitcher who's really dealing and getting a ton of ground balls. But if the field behind that pitcher is not in position properly or performing up to the caliber that they need to be, it's possible that guys will get on base runs will be scored and that will affect the pitcher's ERA. So what are your thoughts on FIP in terms of it being a really good sabermetric to analyze pitching performance?
1: FIP is a really good stat and is a good example of a sabermetric stat that aims to isolate the performance of the pitcher and kind of strip out some of the variables that are outside of the pitcher's control I think that one of the flaws with it is it's a little bit too reliant on the three true outcomes in baseball. So walks, strikeouts, home runs, fielding independent pitching is basically just valuing those three things and saying, this is what's within a pitcher's control. And whatever happens on the field of play is outside the pitcher's control. I think that's a reasonable assumption to some extent because you're trying to only give the pitcher credit or blame for the things that are absolutely in the pitcher's control. But I think it does lose a little bit of the nuance of what happens on the field because there are pitchers who are better or worse at limiting hard contact. their are ground ball versus fly ball pitchers. And so it misses a little bit of that nuance, but I would agree on a raw basis that it tells you a better story than something like ERA, which Assigns credit and blame much more broadly than we would like to.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I guess I'm probably a little biased because I'm a pitcher, but I do personally think that, you know, after the ball comes off the bat, there's not much the pitcher is going to be able to do, right? Yes, I hear what you're saying in terms of hard hit versus soft hit, but even, you know, ground balls, fly balls, once the ball comes off the bat, there's nothing the pitcher really has any control over. At that point, it's completely in the hands of the field. So if you got guys behind you who are not, playing up to par, or maybe you got a really slow third baseman and he can't get over to a ball in the hole or something like that. That's way beyond a pitcher's control, and I don't think a pitcher should be responsible for that. But on the term defense, let's switch to the second Sabre metric I liked, which is DRS, defensive runs saved, which is a metric that measures a player's defensive contribution by looking at how many runs they've saved or cost their team. I really like that metric because I feel like in baseball, there's a lot of metrics and focus on pitching. And there's a lot of metrics that are focused on hitting. There are not that many metrics that are focused on fielding. And I think it's really important to a franchise, to a team to have those cornerstone fielders, the guys like Nolan Arenado, who you just know are a magnet, right? And they're making plays left and right. They're making the routine ones, the spectacular catches, And to actually have a metric that, you know, rewards them for their performance, I think is pretty cool and very new in the game of baseball. Would you say?
1: Yeah, I think defensive run, save DRS is a great stat. And like you said, I think a lot of the focus is on the offense. I, for whatever reason, my whole life, I've always been a defensively focused athlete in Baseball as a catcher, I was always very focused on my performance behind the plate. And for whatever reason, in basketball too, I always grew up as a defensive specialist.
0: I can definitely second that notion. This guy was a wall behind the dish.
1: Thanks, Jake. Um, One thing that I love about DRS is it gives you a quantifiable way to say that a player was or was not valuable on defense. We have so many stats, both in the mainstream media and even sabermetric stats that look at how valuable a player was offensively. We don't have to get into all of them right here, but there's many that we could name. And like you said, there's not so many that ascribe value to defense. So it's great to have something that we could look at to say, here's how valuable a player was defensively. One thing that I would take away from it. And this isn't even so much of a knock on DRS as it is a way to say we can do even better as an analytics community. I don't think DRS is appropriately built out for catchers. I have my own bias here as a catcher, but as a center fielder, I think it's easier to look at it and say, a ball hit with a certain exit velocity to a certain sector of the field. Maybe you parse out the field by many different locations on the field as many different sites and models that do this. And you say a ball with a certain exit velo at a certain launch angle that lands in this sector gets caught, let's call it, 30% of the time. And so a center fielder who makes that play gets rewarded knowing that it was a 30% play and gets not rewarded for 70%. I think it's much harder to quantify a catcher who blocks well, a catcher who frames pitches well. There are some ways that people do this, but I don't think DRS itself does a good enough job of capturing that. And so I would still argue that in today's game, the defensive value of a catcher is probably still undervalued.
0: Do you think that the reason why you feel that way is because there's so many more aspects to being a catcher in terms of defense than a center fielder, right? Like there's framing, there's blocking, there's throwing, there's so many things that a catcher does comparative to a shortstop who fields a ground ball and, you know, throws it to a base, cuts off, throws it to a base. I feel like the position of catcher is a little bit more multidimensional. So maybe it's a little bit harder to quantify.
1: I think that's a lot of it. The fact that there's a lot more going on. And so it's harder to, uh, it's just a harder position to look at. Like you said, there's more going on. And so it's harder to give value to every little thing. I think another reason why it's difficult is, for example, like I mentioned, for a center fielder, most of the plays that you're giving them credit or blame for are fly balls or line drives. You're not going to give a center fielder so much credit for whether or not they fielded the ball that basically rolled to them in the outfield. You give them an error if they miss it, but other than that, there's not much there. And so it's pretty straightforward to say, okay, a ball was hit with this launch angle at this exit velocity to this part of the field. That's pretty much the whole equation. And then maybe the one other part is where did the center fielder start at the beginning of the play? Just so you could get a sense of how far was he from the ball, et cetera. It's a more well-defined problem of, did the player who started at this location get to the ball that was hit at this angle with this speed versus catching? We focused on this a little bit with Matt. There's more intangible stuff going on that I believe could be quantified in some way, but not the mainstream nor the sabermetric community does a great job of valuing a catcher's defense these days, in my opinion.
0: Well, I guess Mark Abramovitz will have to come up with a defensive metric for catchers that will help evaluate them more in the future. I'm working on it. Stay tuned. <laughs> Moving on to our third metric is WAR. WAR is one that we've personally spoken about that we both you know, really enjoy, one that's talked about a lot in baseball. WAR stands for wins above replacement. It's a metric that attempts to measure how many more wins A player contributes to their team than a replacement player, which is a good metric because it encompasses all of those metrics, hitting, fielding, pitching, all that stuff, right? And it encompasses into one metric that can help teams kind of evaluate, you know, Hey, which player is better at a certain position for us in this given point of time, right? So what are your thoughts on war in terms of how do you think teams utilize it well and how kind of teams can use it better?
1: To me, war is one of the best stats, like you said, for getting to the bottom line of how valuable is this player and what decisions should we make based on this value as a team. And it does a really good job of synthesizing a lot of very important data to say, at the end of the day, over the course of a season, this player got you this many wins, which you would not have had. If you had a replacement level player instead, what's interesting about war and to the point that you made at the beginning of the podcast about how analytics and in particular, the stuff that Bill James was initially interested in was to better understand the game versus sometimes we look at these things and think, well, it's even harder to understand now that you've added so many layers of abstraction on top of it. It's great that we have one number at the end of the day that says the player was worth this many wins and don't look under the hood. It's just, here's the final number. The problem for looking at athletes sometimes is maybe two guys have the same war and one was better to your team in some way or another, right? Maybe one guy's war was more driven by his defense versus another guy's war was more driven by his offense. And somebody might look at that and say, listen, at the end of the day, they were worth the exact same war. So who cares? This is something that we'll focus on in a bit also and something I want to get into. And this is part of where I think the analytics community is going to go in the next decade or two is not just evaluating players, but evaluating a player's role on a team. And so I would counter the, look, if they have the same war, they would have been worth the same amount. So forget everything else. I don't think that's true. Both from a data perspective, I think that misses a lot of nuance, but also as an athlete, you can look at people who somebody would say these players are equivalent, but that's just not going to be the case on two different teams.
0: I 100% agree with you. And it's something that we touched on a little bit during the first episode of this podcast, where we spoke about guys like Carlos Beltran, we spoke about guys like David Ross, and those guys had such an integral part in those teams successes because of intangibles, right? Things that you could not measure. So like you're saying, some guys might have identical wars, they might on the field contribute to their teams in nearly identical ways. But there are certain things about certain guys within the clubhouse or on the field or in the dugout that bring a different environment and different type of energy to a team that will lead to more success. And I agree with you that I think one way that the analytical community could grow is one, how to measure those intangibles and two how to intertwine those intangibles into statistics that talk about player performance, right? And how those can be blended. And I guess that's what we're going to hash out. And that's what hopefully will grow from this podcast and within the analytical community regardless. So let's move into the Moneyball story. The Moneyball story is the story of a general manager of a baseball team that was really struggling and was also not in a strong financial position to acquire the players that people quote unquote thought could help the franchise win more games. His name's Billy Bean, and what Bean did was he explored how utilizing data could help the team make decisions in which players they should acquire. What they did was, is they created and used a variety of metrics that helped value each player, which made comparing them way easier for the general manager. In addition to winning more games and increasing the overall success of the franchise, they did so while having the lowest cost per win compared to any other team. So this was revolutionary for the world of baseball. Mark, why don't you hash it out and dive into this stuff a little bit more?
1: So as you mentioned, the motivation mostly for them needing to develop new ways to look at players was the financial constraint which is where the term money ball comes from to begin with was teams like the Yankees and Red Sox could pay whatever they wanted for a player. There's a good player out there. We'll buy him or we'll pay his contract. Very easy for a team like the A's. They didn't have the money to do that. So they kind of needed to look at what was left over and say, what value did the Sharks miss out on that? we think is almost as valuable, as valuable, and sometimes even more valuable than these teams made it out to be. Some of this is stuff that we focused on a little bit already. So a huge motivating factor for them. And if you've seen the movie, there's an iconic scene in the movie where they're focusing on players on base percentage versus their batting average. And Billy Bean is talking about he gets on base. That is all they care about. At the end of the day, I'm looking at some data from the book, smart baseball written by Keith law. He broke down over the five seasons from 2011 to 2015, how certain stats correlated with a team's runs per game and dive into this very quickly. Batting average was 75% correlated with the team's run per game on base percentage was even better than that. It was 83% correlated with how many runs a team scored. Slugging percentage was even better. It was 90% correlated with how many runs a team scored per game. And if you take them together, which has become an extremely popular and important statistic in baseball today, if you look at their OPS, which is your on base percentage plus your slugging percentage, doesn't totally make sense mathematically, but you can just throw the numbers together and pretend it makes sense. That was 93% correlated with how many runs a team scored per game. One thing that bothers me about that analysis, but also about the way that people treat OPS in today's game is that this stat was born during this Moneyball era of saying we can do away with things like batting average and RBIs and look at things like on base percentage and slugging. The motivation behind those basically being, if you get on base, you didn't get out. That's definitely the most helpful thing you could do to your team in a lineup is that you didn't get out and you kept the lineup moving. And slugging percentage is the way to say, we give you more credit for having more power. The way slugging percentage works is it's like batting average in that it's how many hits you got per at-bats. The key difference is that it weights your hits by what type of hit it was. So a single counts as one hit, a double counts for two, a triple counts for three, and a home run counts for four. So if you hit a home run in every at-bat you have, you have a 4,000 slugging percentage. So teams look at OPS as a way to balance your contribution from your on-base percentage plus your slugging percentage. One thing that struck me as very important when I read Moneyball, and still sticks with me to this day, is that the model that was used by Billy Bean and his team of analysts when they were looking at this stuff, said that one point of on-base percentage was three times more important as a point of slugging percentage, which to me would imply that the most relevant statistic that you could be using is you should be adding together three times a player's on-base percentage plus their slugging percentage. The point of that would be to say, We know that getting on base is important and we know that hitting for power is important, but we can't just weight them equally because they're not equally contributing to how valuable a player is. And so we should be valuing the on-base percentage more. I have my theories about why the league and maybe the media values on-base percentage plus slugging, which in not only my opinion, but the opinion of the athletics at the time, and I would imagine the opinion of many analysts that slugging percentage is not as valuable, is that we're basically overvaluing power. And I think there are maybe social reasons for this to be explored as to why hitting a home run is much sexier than getting a walk. But that's always rubbed me the wrong way, that even today, when a guy gets up to bat and the TV shows you his stats, they still talk about they OPS. And every time I look at OPS, I can't help but wonder what's his three OPS. If you wait on base percentage three times as much, then which guys are the most valuable?
0: It's funny for me when I'm watching the game as an avid baseball fan compared to a regular common fan, one would say, and guys are bat flipping home runs and pimping the crap out of it. And when a guy gets on base by getting a walk and he steals second base, guy moves him over, bloop single, guy scores. I love that. I think that is such good baseball and I wish every team played that gritty small ball style, but you never see guys bat flipping a walk. You only see guys putting the ball in a gap, doing double celebrations and pimping home runs. So it's interesting to see how, like you were saying, social reasons of wanting to loop fans in the game is going to affect that.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think there's some back and forth of society overvalues home runs. Players get more excited when they hit home runs. That makes home runs more exciting. People get more excited when they see home runs. And it creates this analytic black hole, if you will, where we're overvaluing power and losing sight of the most valuable thing a player could do for their team, which is just get on base. Going from the Moneyball revolution in the early 2000s there were several teams that over the course of this century have been very successful employing some of those techniques right after the A's had their success in the early 2000s you had the Rays at the time the Devil Rays which were also a poor franchise that needed to play some money ball to try to win and they had new management come in in the mid 2000s And they started to have some success toward the end of that decade. And the way that they did that was in a very similar way. They tried to find inefficiencies in the way that teams priced players so that they could find the, as you said, they wanted to pay the least for their wins. And they ended up being very successful doing that.
0: Yeah. And since 2017, Despite playing in probably the toughest division in baseball, the Rays have never finished worse than third in the division and have consistently increased their winning percentage. And they did that while being bottom five in payroll across the league. And let me tell you, as a Yankee fan, that pisses me off because the the Yankees are always going out and they're buying these top free agents and signing all these guys and The Rays somehow start the year with these no-name rosters, and they make the playoffs year in, year out. They're top of the division. They're winning 100 games. And the fact that they have found a way to continue being the modern-day Moneyball A's is awesome in my eyes. The Rays... We're one of the first teams in Major League Baseball to really take a chance on analytics. And they're by far one of the most analytically advanced teams across all of Major League Baseball. They use analytics not only as a tool to trade for efficient players that you can that they can use in the future, but they also use it as a developmental tool to make sure that before these players even get to the big leagues, they're getting as good as they can. And I remember stumbling upon an image. And it was from 2021 that the Rays that year had the best record in the American League in the MLB. They had the best record and were the champs in the AAA. They lost by one in the deciding game of a championship in the A. They had the best record and were the champs in high A, low A, and the complex league. That's the year after they made the World Series. So they made the World Series in 2020. And then in 2021, they follow up with almost a sweep of the entire levels of baseball being the best record and or champions or both. That to me screams they're doing something right. They are evaluating and analyzing players all the way down from right when they draft them to going all the way up to the guys playing in the show. And when you have a franchise that can evaluate and analyze players, and do so at such a cheap level, that is a recipe for success. And as a Yankee fan, a recipe to really ruin a lot of my nights.
1: Yeah, if you want to talk about, as a Yankee fan, the recipe to ruin a lot of nights, we can also definitely talk about the Houston Astros. They've been a wildly successful organization for the past 10 years or so. They were also extremely sharp at drafting particular players. They had a lot of homegrown talent, but they're also exceptional at developing the talent that they have, both new talent that comes up from their own organization, as well as guys that they traded for or signed in free agency, whose careers they were really able to revitalize by using either new techniques to develop them from a physical perspective or something like having a pitcher throw a pitch that he's really effective using more often. Good example of that is Lance McCullers. The Astros looked at him and said, this guy has an elite curveball. What would he look like as a pitcher if instead of saying you're a starting pitcher and therefore a curveball must be your secondary pitch, if we just said, hey, throw your curveball 48% of the time and let's see what happens. And he had a ton of success, not only against the whole league. But yeah, he kept me up some sleepless nights as a Yankee fan as well.
0: Building off of that, you mentioned Lance McCullers. There's guys like Justin Verlander, Garrett Cole, Ryan Presley, all these guys that they've also not only drafted, but traded for. And guys who have, yes, they were already established previously in some cases, but all of which have increased performance since coming to the Astros. Cole's ERA before he was in Houston was a three five, on Houston two eight. Verlander's career ERA in Detroit was three four nine, in Houston two four three, and Presley's was three point seven before he got to Houston, and is a one point five since he's got there. So they're really, really good at developing pitchers. So yes, they're really good at drafting homegrown guys. But they're really good at trading for guys that they know they can develop and really getting their hands on them and increasing their performance. And one guy that I want to dive into a little bit more is Ryan Presley, right? In 2017, Presley was actually sent down to AAA and then called back up, but was disastrous that year. Had a 4.7 ERA, only appeared in 57 games, zero saves. The year that he got traded to the Astros before the trade deadline, had a 3.4 ERA, no saves, only 51 appearances. Gets traded to the Astros in 2018. Why don't you guess what his ERA was on the Astros for the rest of that year?
1: Probably something like a 3.0?
0: Not pretty even good. a one in front of it. Yeah, that, exactly. That's pretty good, right? And something interesting that I found was... Presley speaking about what that experience was getting traded to the Astros. He said the second he got done unpacking in the clubhouse, he was summoned into a meeting with the pitching coach, the bullpen coach, multiple analysts, and they sat him down and they said, we have a plan for you to be better. He literally quotes said, they sat me down and they put up all these X, Y charts and all these other stuff. It almost sounded like they were speaking a different language. So that just shows how deep into the pitching analytics the Astros were, right? And some of the things they told him was his two-seam fastball was not as effective as he thought it was, and his curveball, which they wish he would have thrown more, was really, really effective. In addition to that, they wanted him to elevate the four-seam fastball and throw his slider a little bit more to increase the effectiveness of that fastball. So what did Presley do? He threw his ego aside and he stuck to the blueprint. So that year with the Astros, he threw the sinker less than 1% of the time, and he threw his curveball 39% of the time compared to 24% the year before. And what happened? His success immediately increased. And again, that just shows the way that the Astros are able to develop pitchers different than other organizations. Presley was still the same guy, throwing the same pitches with the same movement and the same mechanics. But the Astros came in and they were like, listen, we think that you can be more successful with a different plan. By following X, Y, and Z, you can be this type of a pitcher. And that's exactly what happened. Cole and Verdlander had very similar experiences as well. Same thing with Garrett Cole. No one ever told him how good his curveball was. And how bad his two-seamer was. And that he's, that's a direct quote from Garrett Cole. Now, on the Yankees, this is a guy who completely dominates hitters with what? Not a two-seam fastball, but a high-elevated four-seam fastball and a really good curveball. And that, I hate to say it, came from the Astros, right? So it just really, really shows you how a team has so much control over how their players perform based off of how well they can dive in and utilize analytics. And we spoke about this before with Nick on our second episode of the podcast. The way that organizations make this stuff easily digestible to players is just as important as how well they can understand the data, right? You can have an organization that is really good at diving into data and understanding stuff. But if you can't deliver it to your players in an understandable, digestible way, they will never be able to use it.
1: Totally agree. It plays into the culture that teams like the Rays and the Astros must have, where you talk about these cases with the Astros. Guys come to them and they say, we are going to basically take apart What made you so successful and get to the major leagues? Or lack of success. Yeah, absolutely. It's their success to get to the majors, but their lack of success to be an elite performer at that level. And they come to a team like the Astros, and they, to the player's credit, have the humility to say, I don't know everything. And maybe there's parts of my game that I never considered. And so if you're telling me that I've got a great four seam and curveball and I'm overusing, my two-seam, I can't stress enough how much it speaks to the culture that those teams have. And like you said, their ability to convey in a strong, digestible manner to the players, the fact that it's in everyone's best interest to look at things the way that they're trying to see it. And I'm sure there's challenges that come in there of how you want to balance what made you successful with what hypothetically make you successful going forward. To share a quote recently, when the Yankees hired Brad Ausmus this offseason as a bench coach, and he was asked about the way that he looks at data as a former catcher. And his response to that, I'll read the quote here. He said, I used to do the scouting reports in Houston for almost a decade, and it was based on data. And then I would put it into play in the game, and I found that the data was probably right 85% of the time. But you have to use your eyes as well. It's not a vacuum out there. You have to use your eyes, and you have to use your experience. I put a lot of emphasis on data, but it is not the entire answer to winning baseball games. I think that's a great window into the kinds of things that we're trying to get into here, where we're saying the data is valuable. Don't discard information that you're getting on the basis of, I've already been great or I know how to win baseball games. There's a lot of valuable information there. But like you're saying, it's not the entire answer. And you have to, as you said, use your experience and look at it that way. I think this is a good transition into where we are right now, the teams that are elite and have these cultures and are able to use data really effectively today to where do we think we're going with analytics in the next decade or two? Do you have any thoughts on what the industry is headed for either on the gameplay or development side of things?
0: Yeah. And obviously you guys can't see this, but I've been nodding my head for the past 15 seconds as Mark was saying those things, because I could not agree more with the points he was making. I think for me, the way that I would hope to see baseball and this industry grow within the analytics is we spoke about it before is measuring the intangibles. Like Asmus said, baseball is a human game and, and yes, data is important, but you know, having that eye and that feel for it is also incredibly important. So for teams to be able to blend the data that they get versus that kind of human decision-making of, you know what? Yes, the slider from Presley might be a tad more efficient than the curveball, but there's a stat that with runners on second and third base, his curveball is actually more effective than a slider. And you know what that tells me? That tells me as a pitching guy and a pitching coach that he's actually more comfortable throwing that curveball compared to the slider. And I wish that those type of intangibles were kind of wrapped into statistics a little bit more. Does that make sense?
1: Totally makes sense. I think that's definitely a direction that the industry can head in. It's funny because we call these things intangibles today. In 10, 15, 20 years, they might be tangibles. There might be ways to quantify these things. And so it'll be kind of funny to call them intangibles when it'll be a more well understood thing.
0: I guarantee that back in the day, with the Moneyball Astros, they were talking about these, you know, statistics that we measure today intangibles, and the fact that we can do that now makes me very optimistic of what we can do moving forward.
1: To put it in perspective of something that used to maybe be considered an intangible, which today is very much tangible, you could look at something like exit velocity. In the mid 1900s, you probably just looked at a guy and said. He hits the ball hard. That's an intangible. This guy hits the ball hard. There's no way to quantify that. You didn't have high-speed cameras looking at every inch of the baseball diamond the entire game. Now it's just, you want to know a guy's exit velocity? You look up his average exit velocity.
0: That's actually a good question for you. What guys from that era come to your mind in terms of wishing you knew their exit velocity? Guys, when you were like, oh, that guy rips baseballs, I'm curious, like which guy comes to mind for you?
1: It's a great question. I would have to bet being that exit velocity is generally, you know, when you look at the guys in the top of the league in exit velocity, there's some outliers here and there, but generally these are pretty sharp hitters. What's interesting to me is that someone who has been pretty high in the league in his good years in exit velo is a guy like DJ LeMahieu. Not a guy who's considered conventionally a power hitter, but because he makes real solid contact a very high percentage of the time, his average exit velo looks good. So he's not a Giancarlo Stanton, Vlad Jr., who's hitting 115 mile an hour laser home runs that are leaving the ballpark in three seconds. But he's very rarely making weak contact. And so, for me, a guy that I'd be curious to see his exit velo would be a guy like Tony Gwynn, because he could hit anything. And so, again, not a guy who's considered a power hitter, but I'd be interested to know, hypothetically, if that's a guy who made solid contact so much of the time that he would have been a DJ Lemayhu type near the top of the league in an average exit VLO.
0: And this is why Mark and I are a great duo, because you get a little bit of the ying and a little bit of the yang, because the first guy that I thought of was Barry Bonds. I'm like, wow, I wish I knew you know, how hard that guy hit his home runs. They were probably 130 miles an hour. So you get a little bit of both perspectives from Mark and I, which is definitely good as a listener.
1: Don't get me wrong. I'd love to see the numbers on any of Barry Bonds, many, many home runs. I'm sure that guy had some crazy stats if he were to play in the StatCast era. What I think is going to be a major focus of the next decade or two, and I alluded to this earlier, is ever since Moneyball, I think the secret kind of came out of on-base percentage is probably the most important individual statistic And I say individual statistic because something like OPS is kind of an amalgamation of two different things. And so it kind of came out that on base percentage is the most important single thing you could have. And along with that, I think teams have taken a deeper look at which things are and are not important. And when I say important, I mean, predictive of how many runs a team scores, because ultimately that's how you win games I think the market for individual players has gotten very efficient. There are not really many cases where one team is able to say, nobody else knows that this guy has a hidden talent, like walking. Everyone sees that already. Where I think the next revolution is going to come is in valuing a team and not just an individual player. If you were to stack a lineup of guys where you're just optimizing for, let's say, OPS, and you put together a lineup of really good power hitters and whatnot, but maybe they all kind of have the same weakness, maybe they all are bad at hitting in a particular area of the zone, you're going to lose to a pitcher who throws a really effective pitch in that area of the zone. And I admit that's a bit of a contrived example. If you put together a team of guys with a really high OPS, they're probably on average pretty good players. But what I think might be missed is when I look at the last five to 10 years and look at the teams that have actually won the World Series, they're teams that have more balance. They have the home run hitters, but they have the guys who get the timely playoff hits with a runner in scoring position. And the teams that I see fizzle out in the playoffs are the teams that are a little too one-dimensional. And that's on the offensive side. On the pitching side, it's no secret that you need great starting pitching to win in the playoffs. But I think where the inefficiencies are going to come from is not the market for individual players, but is going to be in how teams value the value that a player brings to the rest of their team. And so a player that's really good, who you might pay the right amount for, might not be as valuable to their team as their quote unquote war on the open market and vice versa. A player might fit really well on your team where maybe this is a guy who hits for a solid average, who's kind of that key piece that I'm saying you might be missing come playoff time where his OPS doesn't jump off the charts. And so why sign him? But along with the rest of the team that you've put together, you need that kind of guy in your lineup.
0: We call this being a little too reliant on the long ball. And I think a lot of teams have been doing this recently. And I agree with you that those world series winning teams seem to have something else that's working for them. Yes. They have those timely home runs, but they got guys who can get on base, steal bases, move guys on. And I think another thing that's interesting is, which you didn't touch on is chemistry, right? How can we measure chemistry? Because some teams have it and some teams do not. And You know, there might be teams like the Dodgers who are always stacked and win a ton of games in the regular season, but something comes along playoff time and there's another team that has clicked and gelled just a little bit more than them that somehow have success in the right times. So how can we, like you're saying, analyze a team as a whole, which has a lot of other components than just war and individual players and how can we measure that and effectively train that within specific franchises to create, you know, positive performance and wins and World Series. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're looking for, right? We're not looking to, oh, who can compile the best team of guys who have a ton of war and we don't win World Series? That's that's not the point, right? The point is we want to win games, we want to win titles and being able to analyze teams as a whole. Will probably help guys do that, you know. So I definitely think that that is an interesting way that the field of data can grow, and I wonder how soon that will that will be.
1: Yeah, one other piece that I would love to see more of in the coming years, and I'm sure this is something the teams already invest a lot of resources in, but as they're able to gather even more data, will be something they get even better at is injury prevention. The more data that we could get on players, both in game and out of game, if you're able to look at a player's heart rate or other metrics that indicate how well a player is recovering, I would love to see that used in a way that allows players to optimize their own performance, take off days on optimal days would be interesting to see the effects of, is it possible to take too many off days and then your body is not conditioned for the long season. As someone who loves the game and as someone who respects the players and their craft, I obviously want to see these players on the field as often as they are able. And so preventing injuries and using data to be able to do that, I think can be a major focus and a very attainable goal. In short, if I had to put this Moneyball story and saga into a neat box, I would say that it started with an inefficient market for players and teams were able to make that market more efficient. After that happened, the competitive edge started to come a little bit more from the development of players than just being able to find players at a discount or basically for free in some cases. That being said, just because there's already been a more efficient market for players and teams have started to figure out how to develop players better, I don't think the story is over. As we just focused on a few of these examples, I think there are still certain market inefficiencies on a team level and in some of the ways that we mentioned as well. I think there's tons of room left for the development of players and the other side of the coin of development is injury prevention so that you can not have setbacks and continue to develop players. And so I definitely don't think this is the end of Money Bowl in any way, shape or form. I think we're just getting started and there's a lot of exciting avenues to pursue going forward.
0: A thousand percent. And with the injury prevention and performance stuff, you are tiptoeing into my wheelhouse and I'm not going to touch it too much because I will probably just ramble for hours about that topic, but it really bubbles down to four words for me. I agree with you. That's it. Plain and simple. If we can optimize performance and prevent injury, that is the number one thing we want to do in sports. So 1,000% agree. And if data and analytics can get there in baseball, that is something that would benefit the game in a hundred different ways. So to tie everything up, We started all the way from the beginning, we hit on Sabermetrics, we hit on Bill James. We took that to a gold, silver, and bronze with FIP, DRS, and WAR. We broke down the Moneyball story, we touched on the Rays, we touched on the Astros, we touched on where analytics within baseball is today and where we think that's going. So I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode And as always, we will catch you next time on The Sweet Spot Podcast.